This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 29, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The Cultural Revolution came immediately after Chairman Mao's Great Leap Forward, a brutal episode of famine that claimed the lives of tens of millions of Chinese people. But the Cultural Revolution was no less mad in its execution. In his book, The Cultural Revolution, A People's History, Frank DeCotter details some of the lesser-known aspects of Mao's ideological purges and what they meant for average people. We spoke this week. The last book of yours that I read was The Tragedy of Liberation, which details some of the fights between Mao and Chiang Kai-shek and sort of the establishment of the Chinese Communist Party as a, as a force. And this, uh, The Cultural Revolution, A People's History, uh, picks up after a fairly large and uh, incredibly significant gap in in Chinese history. So, at the moment you begin in 1961 and 62, what what did the world look like to the average person in China? It, it would have been pretty awful. So, remember that the very first book in the trilogy was called Mao's Great Famine. And it's about the period that comes in between these two books, 1958 to 1962. So in that book, Mao's Great Famine, I showed how at least 45 million people were neglected, beaten, starved to death. An extraordinary catastrophe, probably one of the greatest crimes against humanity uh, in, in the 20th century. So by the time that I start this book, 1962, uh, most ordinary people in the countryside would be emerging from sheer horror, would be trying, if they managed to survive the famine, would be trying to somehow put back together pieces of their lives. But it's not just restricted to the countryside. The cities, too, are still suffering from the awful economic collapse of that country caused by Mao's great leap forward in 1958. So the point really must be that you cannot understand the Cultural Revolution without realizing how extraordinarily badly damaged this country is several years before 1962. With that as the as the backdrop, and of course that's a the shortest possible version we can give to those events. Uh, what was Mao's aim at this point uh, in undertaking the Cultural Revolution? There are several aims, and it makes it slightly complicated. At the most basic level, um, Mao has a particular view of communism. He realizes that in 1956, Nikita Khrushchev, in a secret speech, has denounced Stalin, his erstwhile master, and detailed the horrors of Stalin's reign. Um, in other words, it's the start of de-Stalinization in the socialist camp. And Mao views that with a great suspicion and thinks, you know, how come that one single man, Nikita Khrushchev, can single-handedly engineer a complete reversal of policy in the mighty Soviet Union? So he concludes, I believe, that the problem is that in 1917, with the Bolshevik Revolution, the bourgeoisie has been eliminated, but bourgeois culture is still around. 
So the point of the Cultural Revolution is really a second revolution. It's a revolution against bourgeois culture, ideology, ideas that belong to the past and continue to contaminate people, turning them into revisionist elements who want to lead China back on the road to capitalism. That's the fear. But there's something else going on too, namely that Mao wishes to shore up his own standing in world history. He believes that Lenin, of course, is the man who somehow carried out the great socialist, uh, the great October socialist revolution. And he thinks that he's going to be the one who takes it further. He's the one who develops Marxism-Leninism into Marxism-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, with the Cultural Revolution. In other words, Lenin has shown the socialist world how to eliminate the bourgeoisie. Mao will show them how to get rid of bourgeois culture. He's the one who leads humanity towards a communist future. Now, slightly megalomaniac, of course, but you must see that the man is pretty convinced of his own, you know, importance in, in world history. And then there's something else going on, too. Underneath all those grandiose ideas is simply a technique used by an old man to make sure that nobody will ever stab him in the back. He's seen Khrushchev denounce Stalin. And he's afraid that there will be somebody denouncing him, possibly even as he is alive. So he uses the Cultural Revolution to keep his colleagues on their toes. He, in short, uses the people to attack the party, creating a willed chaos in which he can change the rules at any one time. You spoke a little bit about the decollectivization of land. Uh, within this time period, the early part of this time period. When did that happen and what was driving it and what was Mao's response? Decollectivization happens the moment you collectivize <laughs> in the sense that it is a little bit like the black market. The, the moment you have a collectivized economy, the moment the state starts deciding what it is you can buy and trade, there will be naturally a black market appearing on the fringes of that society. So to some extent, from 1949 onwards, there's constantly been an attempt by ordinary people to reclaim some element of economic freedom, and there's been an attempt on the part of the state to constantly push through collectivization. Now, we know what happened during the Great Leap Forward, 5862, an attempt at radical collectivization, where people are pretty much stripped of any possession, including pots and pans to cook food, as food is distributed by the spoonful in public canteens, leading to that catastrophe I mentioned earlier on, Mao's Great Famine. So during the famine, Ordinary people, in order to survive, <clears throat> start by 1960-61 to take back the land, to cultivate it on their own, to trade in whatever it is they can trade, whether it's the bricks from their own homes, sometimes even selling their children just to get by and make sure these children might survive somewhere else. Um, in other words, they turn capitalist, so to speak. Um, immediately. After the end of the Great Leap Forward, Mao goes on the attack and from 62 onwards wishes to eliminate 
all these tendencies, that decollectivization, he wishes to put a halt to it. He managed to do so by 1963-64. Whatever land was decollectivized is now back in the hands of the people's communes. Now, the point here, if I may fast forward towards 1971, is that at the end of the Cultural Revolution, after Lin Biao dies in a mysterious plane accident in September 71, once the military go back to the barracks, ordinary people in the countryside see that they have a much greater opportunity than ever before. In other words, the organization of the party in the countryside has been fatally undermined by the Cultural Revolution. There simply aren't enough leading cadres willing to maintain the planned economy. So on the sly, surreptitiously, millions upon millions of ordinary people in the countryside, frequently with the help of local cadres, start quietly redistributing the land. They start distributing collective assets. They start spending more and more time on their own small private plots and extending them to the extent that they make much more than they ever did. In, in short, from north to south, from 1970 on, onwards, five years before the death of the chairman, large parts of the countryside are already very quietly being decollectivized. That would seem to speak directly to Mao's attempt to remove bourgeoisie culture. Was it, it seems like a fairly difficult challenge to identify even who might be the leaders or, or people who are actively engaged in that culture? Well, of course, it seems quite absurd. The opening shot of the Cultural Revolution uh, is on the 1st of June 1966, when the People's Daily, the, the mouthpiece of the party, uh, publishes an editorial called Sweep Away All Monsters and Demons, and inciting ordinary people to somehow liquidate all representatives of the bourgeoisie who've managed to sneak their way into the party and the state and the army. It is absurd in the sense that by 1966, there's nobody left. This country from 1949 onwards has gone through one purge after the other. Alleged landlords literally shot in 1949, alleged counter revolutionaries shot in stadiums in 1950 to 51. It goes on and on and on. That's the beauty of the archives, because you find reports where ordinary local cadres say, what bourgeoisie? Who is bourgeois in this country? There is nobody left. We're all communists. So clearly, the point here about about inciting people to find bourgeois elements, to discover hidden capitalist rodents, to ferret out hidden bad elements, is pretty much to pit, pe to pit people against each other. It's no longer about real enemies. It's entirely about imaginary enemies. So just about anything round about, this starts in 1966, round about 1969, 70, just about anything and everything can be construed as a counter-revolutionary act. You poke a hole in a Mao poster inadvertently, 
you will be accused of being a bourgeois element trying to sabotage a socialist revolution. You buy an egg on a black market, you'll be accused of being a capitalist roader bent on leading the country back towards capitalism. Um, so this, of course, is the whole point about the Cultural Revolution, that anybody and everything can be denounced at any one point in time. Given how Chinese media and uh, Chinese schooling and even a significant chunk of people in China think about Mao today, it would seem that in many ways he was successful, that uh, his legacy is seems very different in China than it does here. Well, it's a good question, but let me broaden it to, uh, to planet Earth, so to speak. I mean, how successful was Mao? It all depends on what you look at. If Mao's aim was to prevent any one of his colleagues ever denouncing him, if his aim was to make sure that all of them were kept on their toes throughout the Cultural Revolution so none of them could get together and organize a coup, he succeeded. He died in his own bed. If his goal was to make sure that so-called bourgeois culture, any sign of the past, you know, so-called feudal religious traces were radically eliminated, he failed miserably. If his goal was to prevent China from going capitalist, he failed even before he died in 1976, as I said. Now, as millions of people in the countryside used the chaos of the Cultural Revolution to just go back to the old market principles that were in place before 1949. But this man dies, the countryside has already gone capitalist, quote unquote. If his aim was to become one of the leading figures of the socialist world, now somebody who you would invoke alongside Marx, Engels, and Lenin, I would say he has succeeded in the sense that there are people in this country, in Europe, uh, in China, in other parts of Asia, who regularly read the works of Marx, Engels, occasionally Lenin, and most certainly Mao Zedong. Nobody reads Kim Il-sung. Nobody reads Pol Pot. <laughs> Nobody reads Stalin. But Mao is still up there. There are, this I call it the Mao t-shirt phenomenon. Nobody walks around with a Stalin t-shirt. Plenty of Mao t-shirts. So it all depends on how you look at it. Um, I think if he were to come back and see that his portrait is still up there and that his works are still widely read and there are still true believers in Mao, I think he would be moderately pleased. How is China coming to grips with that history now? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. A few years ago, when Xi Jinping came to power, he made it, he made it very clear that any attempt to query any episode of the history of the Communist Party or query any of its leaders uh, is, is pretty much tantamount to what he referred to as historical nihilism. In other words, it's a no-no. It has sent a chill uh, through the entire historical profession. So uh, until about 2012, there were historians working on the Cultural Revolution there was an attempt to have some sort of public debate. There were memoirs being published either online or in print. Um, 
much of that has unfortunately disappeared. It's a country that has gone very quiet when it comes to its own past. You talked about Mao's death and his efforts at uh, purging those close to him and those likely to stab him in the back. What did the end of his life look like? I know that he was fairly isolated. Well, all dictators are very isolated and all dictators uh, increasingly fear uh, all those around them. There is no trust with anybody in the life of a truly successful dictator. To trust anyone is to make a big mistake. He would have been very isolated. And on top of that, of course, he had a, uh, an increasingly obvious speech impediment that made some people think that he was senile, but he was not. He just found it very difficult to speak. He had some, uh, some paralysis of some of his muscles. So he actually communicated to the outside world, so to speak. Uh, through a nurse he had befriended and bedded many years earlier uh, in the early 1960s. So this one person uh, became more or less his spokeswoman. Frank DeCotter is author of The Cultural Revolution, A People's History. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.